Midlands Today with O'Brien's Hyundai Mullingar. Find out why the Hyundai Tucson is Ireland's best-selling car. Discover our 241 offers today at pobrian.ie. Good morning and welcome to the Midlands Today show. I'm Sinead Hubble and this morning we're looking back at some of your favourite interviews in 2023. Coming up this morning, the governess Anne Hegarty from The Chase traces her roots back to Leash. Brezzy will open up about overcoming his fear of water and the importance of building resilience. And we'll look back at a heartwarming moment when an 11-year-old boy showed us the true meaning of good sportsmanship. But first, it's over to Bradley Walsh to introduce our next guest. Time to face a chaser, but who are we playing today? Will it be the governess? No one knows how old she actually is, but I couldn't go to her 40th birthday because I had school the next day. You could be playing the governess. So cold, she starts her car by yelling mush. Perhaps it's the governess. Her house is so cold, even the squirrels wear thermal underwear. Or is it the governess? She's part Viking, you know. That's the uh, battle axe bit. Perhaps we could be playing the governess. So cold at her house. Last time I went to dinner, I chipped a tooth on my soup. Yes, it is the governess herself, Anne Hegarty. Good morning. Good morning. I hadn't heard all of those before. Um, I should add that those lines aren't actually Bradley's. They're written by our brilliant, brilliant writer, Adam Bostock-Smith. So credit works to you. So it's not Bradley who's always uh, teasing no, you. No, but and he saying... delivers them really well. He's fantastic at his intros for all of the chasers. Every week he is something different and a different way of introducing you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just absolutely the best host we could possibly have. And Adam is the best writer. There must be an incredible team of people working on The Chase. And I suppose that's where we probably should start with you this morning about your career with The Chase, because that's how we all know you and where you rose to fame. But it did start (laughs) way before that, back in the 80s when you were on Mastermind. Well, I was on Mastermind, yes. Uh, It was the 1988 season. I I actually recorded mine in November 1987. um, And I lost in the first round by one point, which sounds awful. I mean, I didn't terribly mind. It was a bit of a disappointment. Um, But what I found out was that there was um, a club that you can join called the Mastermind Club when when you've actually sat in the black chair. Um, And so every uh, every spring I would try to go along to their... um, uh, annual weekend meeting. Um, and, uh, that really was, that was the whole connection that I had with quizzing. Um, there would be sort of various quizzes that weekend. Um, and, uh, I, I was just awed by, by what incredibly pe- clever people they were. I thought they were all way cleverer than I was. Uh, they certainly knew a great deal more. Um, and that really was my connection with the quizzing world. Um, in the 90s, I did uh, Bring Britain a couple of times on Radio 4. Um, but that really, that was the only kind of quizzing that I did. And then it just so happened that in 2009, um, I was at a, a Mastermind Club meeting in um, where I live in central Manchester. Um, and uh, a friend of mine had brought two people along who were not Mastermind Club members. And one of them said to me, do you not know that there is a high level quizzing circuit? And here is the website uh, information. And um, I'd, I'd never heard of this before. I signed up on the website. I arranged to go to a quiz in Liverpool the following month, um, which I did. And uh, while I was there, the BBC were auditioning for the second series of Are You an Egghead? 
um, which was, uh, you know, to find another egghead. So I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be brilliant to have a, a job where you're actually a professional quizzer and you get paid for it. So um, I applied um, and they rang me a few days later saying, OK, you're on the show and we're filming in 10 days. So I thought, right, I've got 10 days to find out stuff that quizzers actually know. No um, so I, I sort of, you know, did a load of... Um, looking up to see who the current um, manager of the England football team was and so on, things I didn't know because I wasn't interested. Um, and uh, I got on the show. It was a knockout um, tournament, and I ended up making the semi-finals and just barely right at the very end getting knocked out. I mean, it was very, it was touch and go whether I'd make it to the final. Um, and uh, the, the whole thing was actually won that year by Pat Gibson from Galway. And once I knew Pat Gibson was in the frame, I thought, oh, I know who's going to win this one. Um, but uh, I ended up, uh, essentially, it was the second semi-final, so I can argue that I came third. And I didn't realize uh, everyone in the quizzing business knows everyone else. And even though it wasn't going to be shown for another six months, um, it was like everyone everyone had see, everyone who, who knew about quizzing had seen it or had heard how well I did. And it happened that um, they just finished making the pilot series of The Chase. And that it was just 10 episodes and it was only Mark and Sean because they couldn't find a woman they thought was right. They'd spent 16 months looking for a female chaser and they hadn't found her. Um, and um, so I watched it when it came out in June. I thought, yeah, this is a good show. And I sort of fantasized, you know, about how cool it would be to be a chaser. And then the following month, um, the woman who ran the circuit said, would I like my name put forward to be um, a female chaser? I was like, uh, yes, please. Um, so a couple of months later, um, that happened. Uh, and I went through four auditions, I think it was. But they said um, that actually they were pretty sure the very first time that, that it was me. The, um, the producer gave an interview um, early last year, I think it was, and she said, um, we tested a lot of female quizzes, but what struck us about Anne was that she was hardcore. And I, I'm not sure what you meant by that, but obviously it was just simply the personality. You were perfect for the role of the governess. so Basically, that's what they felt. And how did that character come about then? Was that something you came up with? Was that the show producers who decided that's the role that you would play? Originally, I, I wanted to make her sort of slightly more creepy. I wanted to make her a cross between um, um, Mrs. Merton and um, Daphne Fowler from Egghead. Sorry, Daphne. Um, and I, I, I wanted people to remember that the, the creepiest thing about Dolores Umbridge in Harry Potter is those damn kittens. So I wanted to be sort of, you know, weird and creepy in that kind of way. And then a friend of mine said, you won't, it's, that's too far from your real personality. You won't be able to maintain it. So instead, I just made her much more. I mean, recently, um, American, an American critic referred to me as McGonagall, McGonagall-ish. So it's like, I'm not Umbridge, I'm McGonagall, which, I mean, let's face it, Umbridge is a villain. Everybody likes McGonagall. So that's OK. I'll take that. Uh, I based her a little bit on my grandmother and a little bit on one of my aunts. Um, I never actually liked either of those two people, though. So um yeah, I, I hope I've made her sort of a bit more like a bit more identifiable with than, than they were. Because I think at the start you were very stern, but over the years your personality has come out. And we do have some of the highlights um, from when you flirt with some of the contestants as well, Anne. <laughs> of course, £60,000 it is. All right, Chaser. 
That's excellent. He's pretty, he's brave, he's not too smart, he's just the kind of... Yes, as I said, um, better than the three. Could have gone high. You had no problem with that. Plus, you are ridiculously cute. So, um, yes, I'm going to enjoy this. Yuck. <laughs> Ooh, I just want to lick you all over. <laughs> when we first started rehearsing for the second series, um, the very first question I remember asking the producers was, can I sexually harass the male contestants? And she said, yes. And I'm a Mark saying, imagine if we were to ask that question. <laughs> there would be trouble. Like, Sorry, boys, female privilege. Exactly, when you were the only female on the show at the time. Sorry? When you were the only female on the, on the show at, at the time, you obviously had to get uh, some uh, extra privileges. Well, absolutely, yes. Uh, Jenny joined in, let me think, 20, early 2015. So up until then, it was just me. And Bradley Walsh, what is he like to work with? Oh, he's just fabulous. I mean, he is such an incredible professional, works so hard. I mean, he's indefatigable. I, you know, I'm constantly terrified he's going to keel over the heart attack or something. Uh, but he keeps saying, no, no, he's fine. And he, he really loves doing the show, which is, uh, you know, what makes it so relatively easy for him. Uh, and he's so generous. I mean, he will, you know, if I've got a funny thing to say, he'll let me say the funny thing. Um and, uh, yeah, he's just, like I say, we, we could not hope for a better host. We really couldn't. And how do you stop yourself from laughing sometimes with some of the things that he actually comes out with? Um, uh, <laughs> well, I don't always. I mean, I, I always um, consider myself to be a terrible corpser. Um, and I feel, I mean, there was a, a famous, famous incident when um, he was tickled by the name of a, a certain German skier. Um, and then he was sort of clenching himself to stop himself giggling. And, and the entire, everyone was just laughing so much at Bradley trying to stop laughing. And I tried to hold it in for ages and then just finally corpse. And I thought, oh, no, I've been so unprofessional. But actually, you know, it, it really worked very well. Um, I mean, um, I've kind of got used to the, the rhythm of Adam's writing. Um, and so I'm better at just holding it together. Um, just just more practice, just more experience. And it's not the only TV show that you've done, but we're going to take a quick break and then we'll discuss I'm a Celebrity and Beat the Chasers. Disagree? Feel free. Text or WhatsApp Midlands today yeah. on 083 103. Midlands 103. And our guest this morning is Anne Hegarty, who you might know as the governess on The Chase. Now, in a couple of minutes, we're going to delve into Anne's family connections here in the Midlands. But first, let's return to our conversation about her TV career. And Anne, another highlight from the TV shows that you've done is I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Now, that was an extremely tough challenge. What do you recall from it now, looking back on it? Uh, I'm I'm glad I did it. Uh, I'm glad I never have to do it again. <laughs> um, I, I am glad that I managed to stay in because for the first few days I was really shaky uh, and was I tried to get out of there on at least one occasion. Um, but uh, the thing is, what really kept me there was I was in with these lovely, lovely people. Um, it happened to be just about the best year you possibly could have. Everyone was just so nice and kind. Uh, and they all bonded over looking after me while I was being pathetic. And then they all bonded with each other. 
Um, and uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that we got the biggest ratings that, uh, that our year had the biggest ratings that I'm a Celeb has ever had. And I think it's because they just loved seeing everyone getting on so well. But, uh, and you said they're tragic and weepy and everyone being nice to me. But that's what people connected with you, that you were real, you were raw, you showed your emotions, you let it all out because mm. a lot of people bottle them up and don't want to share. And it, as you said, brought the group together and united because they wanted to lend their support to you. Yes, I think so. It's difficult to bottle things up when you're screaming and squealing uh, and, and you're like, oh, my God, I have mealworms in my bra. I'm sorry, this is not acceptable. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Um, so, um, yes, I, 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 I've always said nothing happened that I should not have expected. Um, you know, I, I was fully aware that they might drop horrible, creepy crawlies all over me. Um, I think I'd not fully understood the absolutely typical visceral human reaction to cockroaches. I hadn't really seen cockroaches before. I think I'd always vaguely supposed they were kind of like earwigs. But cockroaches are really horrible. Um, you just instinctively think, I want to be somewhere where those are not. Um, so, yes, um, I should have prepared myself better, and I didn't. But as I say, I was very lucky that everybody was so nice to me. And and like some of the challenges that you had to do, just have a clip here of the fish eye smoothie that you had to taste. Another five minutes in the bank. Anne, that was incredible. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was less awful than it sounded, actually. Well, it's, it's a new world record, 12 seconds, 12 seconds to finish it. Incredible stuff, Anne. How did you manage to stomach that? Well, the thing is, um, it, it they were blended. You couldn't tell they were eyes. And I just thought to myself, you know, don't look at it, don't think about it, just chuck it back. Um, and it just simply tasted like um, fish-flavoured salty water. Uh, I should add, I did actually throw up half an hour later. But if you'd kept it down for half an hour, then it was okay. And, uh, and um, you know, they didn't penalise you. So the idea was um, that particular challenge, we all had to, we all had to eat a witchetty grub which I managed just, um, and we all had to drink something disgusting. And if we did that, every everything, every one of those things that we did, we were winning more time for the four, three or four people who were doing the live challenge. Um, they'd sort of been driven into the outback somewhere. And the more uh, things we ate and drank, the more time we got. And actually, we got the, 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 we got the total amount of time. Nobody, nobody failed that one because uh, we all ate and drank what we were asked to. As I say, it was disgusting, but um, I just thought, let's just whack it back as quickly as possible. And Anne, will we see you on any other celebrity shows? Uh, Strictly, any of the other ones? Are you planning to do anything in the future like I, I'm, celebrity? I'm not really. Last last uh, spring, I was on Cooking with the Stars um, and I had an absolutely lovely chef, uh, Jean-Christophe Novelli. So I was anxious not to let him down. But at the same time, I'm actually not all that massively interested in cooking. And I don't tend to get competitive about stuff that I actually don't enormously care about. Um, there was talk of me doing Strictly last year, and they mentioned an enormous amount of money. But the trouble was, I I absolutely cannot dance. I mean, I can't dance. I, in the words of Ardell O'Hanlon, I'm a dancer trapped in the body of a tree. Um so uh, I was like, it's going to take the back end of the year. It's going to be, uh, you know, the whole six months. Um, I am going to be exhausted. I'm, I'm not going to do well. And it's going to make me utterly miserable. 
So uh, I shan't be doing that. I've always secretly rather wanted to learn to ice skate, but I don't honestly think I would be able to hack dancing on ice. I think I'm just starting from too low a skill level. So I don't think so. And they are a huge Um, commitment as well because it's months of your life and it's full dedication to, to these shows. It is. Um, and um, I wouldn't have been able to do Panto at Christmas, um, which I like doing and which is, you know, it, it is in itself lucrative, obviously. Um, so so that would have been a loss. Now, I mean, I did do one thing last year, which was um, there was an ITV charity called Britain Get Talking, which was about mental health. And they put out a show on Christmas Eve called Britain Get Singing, which was when various ITV shows all formed ourselves into little choirs and, and sang a song. And there were only three chasers who were willing to do it. So we were more of a little pop group than a little choir. Um, but, um, you know, we, we gave it our best. And uh, I got a selfie with Will I Am out of it. So that was oh, nice. Amazing. And you are a woman of many talents because you mentioned singing there and the pantomimes as well. So acting, mm. how did that all come about? Um, well, I used to act in school um, and, uh, you know, hadn't done anything since, but always thought, you know, I'd like to try a bit of acting if people would let me. Of course, the governess is, you know, to an extent, the governess is a bit of acting. I mean, I'm not generally like I can certainly switch the governess on when I need her. But, uh, you know, I, I it's not entirely me. So I think of myself as, as a bit of an actress. Uh, I mean, I'm very... I'm completely untrained. I'm very inexperienced. Um, But I'm starting to get to the point where I'm not sort of actually embarrassing myself in front of actual acting. You're listening to a repeat of an interview with Anne Hegarty from The Chase, which was broadcast last July. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Anne's roots in the Midlands. It's time for the latest Community Diary with Tommy Solicitors at Loan, one of the largest, longest established and most respected firms of solicitors in the Midlands. On today's Community Diary, LOETB drop-in clinics for form-filling and digital online support are available every Monday until more library from 10am until 12 noon and Port Leach Library every Tuesday from 10am until 12 noon. It's a free and confidential service and no appointment is needed as this is a drop-in service. Ross Core Clinic treats and supports RSV, flu, pneumonia, bronchitis, COPD, as well as a range of digestive issues, skin, muscle and joint problems, cancer support, plus women's, men's, children's and infants health. With evening appointments available, contact Emmett Walsh or Eva on 057-9355844 or online at medicalherbalist.ie. Want to brush up on your writing, maths or computer skills? Contact your local adult learning services at 057-86-61338 for Leash or 057-9349-444 for Offaly. See LOETB on Facebook. The Community Diary can be viewed on our website, midlands103.com. And if you would like to use the diary, then please call 0818 300 103 or email diary at midlands103.com. The Community Diary, with thanks to Tormy Solicitors, experienced in the areas of law that affect people on a day-to-day basis. Tormies.ie. Anne Hegarty from The Chase joined us on the Midlands Today show last July to tell us about her roots in the Midlands. The Hegarty's from Cork. Um, but um, this is a family called the Britons. And I'd always thought that the Britons were from Mount Rath, which I believe is County Leash. Yes, that's it. Um, yeah, then I came across a book by a woman called Faye Goodwin called The Britons of Ireland. 
And it suggests that actually my branch of the family may have come from a place called Clonona, which is in County Offaly. So I am not sure whether we are Kings County or Queens County, but we're, we're possibly both of them. Well, there's a good lot of Breertons around uh, Leash and Offaly, so they may be uh, distant cousins of yours. So tell us. Oh, about, very probably. Uh, tell us about then the, what you know of your great grandfather, John Breerton, then, and how he moved from Ireland to Scotland. Right. Um, he started out, I think, in uh, Mount Rath County, Leash, but could have been Clononi County, Offaly. How do I know? Um, he. Um, I don't think what he actually started out as. He was a farmer, I think. Um, he farmed uh, the, the farmstead in Mount Rath, and he moved to um, a place that my family, my family can never pronounce anything Irish. They are absolutely hopeless. So I was told that he farmed somewhere called Chapel Izod. Uh, when I actually went um, to Dublin and, and was near there, they told me it's actually called Chapel Izod. So I, obviously I must never listen to my family because they can't talk. Um, but it's kind of it's it's now a suburb of Dublin. It's sort of just the other side of Phoenix Park. Um, and uh, he had a little farm out there and he was very keen on he was a very progressive minded man. And in the 18 late 1880s, I think early 1890s, he was very into the idea of votes for women. Um, and he went along to um, a, a campaign meeting for votes for women. And he saw this woman um, on the hustings shouting about uh, votes for women. And he was like, by God, that's the woman for me. Um, and this was my great grandmother, whose um, father was a landowner in County Down, but who um, they also had a house in, in Dublin. Um, so um, they got married in, uh, I think, 1893. At the, uh, being so progressive, they didn't get married in a church. They got married at the uh, register office on, I think it's Wellington Quay. Uh, no idea, but still there. Um, and um, yeah, he became an excise officer in Aberdeenshire. Um, and uh, my grandmother, she was the youngest of three girls. Um, so all, all three of the, the girls were born in Ballater, um, not that far from Balmoral. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, they, they later moved to Alloa in more central Scotland, not so very far from Edinburgh. Uh, and um, Clackmannanshire generally was, was where my grandmother was brought up, but she was born in Aberdeenshire. And and you're very aware of your family history because back a couple of years ago on Beat the Chasers, you shared a story of the banshee that lived in the apple tree <laughs> in County Leash. Can you remind yeah. us of that story? Uh, well, the story I heard, uh, the thing is, you must remember my grandmother uh, was a tremendous liar. Um, my aunt said she's a, she's a romancer. She always feels that, you know, life is not as interesting as it should be, so she needs to make it more interesting. Um, so I'm never quite sure how, how true her stories are. And I'm fairly sure I don't believe in banshees anyway. But the story was um, that um, on the farmstead at Mount Ralph, there was uh, a banshee who lived in the apple tree. And somebody decided, for some reason, it was a really good idea to chop the apple tree down. And, well, the banshee was just simply furious. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? Um, and she flew three times round the, the farmhouse and then perched on the roof and announced that within two generations, there would be no more Briathans in this part of Ireland. Uh, and apparently there aren't. Um, so that was actually, there's all sorts of reasons Briathans might leave various parts of Ireland. Thing is about the Briathans, um, most of my ancestors tended to stay put. They stayed put in the Scottish borders 
or they stayed put in um, County Down, or they came to London and stayed put there. Um, the Britons went everywhere. I, I think you can find Britons on every continent except Antarctica. And to be honest, I'm not even sure about that. Um, but uh, they have been, yeah, Britons have turned up all over the place. They've turned up in Australia, probably New Zealand, um, North America. I think there was one guy who was an overseer on a plantation in Guyana, so South America, uh, India, South Africa. They're absolutely all over the place. So you have cousins all over the world. <laughs> and, I'm pretty sure I do, yes. And another distant uh, relative of yours is of royalty, um, Queen oh, Elizabeth yeah. <laughs> II. <laughs> well, um, my uh, this grandmother, sorry, this great-grandmother of mine um, who um, was married in Dublin, her, let me think, her grandfather was, um, no, let me work this out. Yeah, her grandfather was a, I can't quite work it out, it's either grandfather or great-grandfather, but was a Scottish baronet called Sir, Sir John Hay, I think, um, from Park, which is in the in southwest Scotland. Um, and he's a direct descendant of Sir Gilbert de la Hay, who married uh, Elizabeth, the daughter of Robert II, who was the first Stuart King of Scotland. Um, the grandson, yeah, I think he was the grandson or great-grandson possibly of Robert Bruce. Um, and uh, it makes the late queen was actually my nineteenth cousin, so uh, so that's how that works. Right. I mean, nineteenth cousin is very very distant. We are talking fourteenth century for our last common ancestor, but uh, yeah, because you know people tend to to sort of keep track of baronets. Uh, anyone that owns a bit of land, you know, you can probably trace them back. Uh, and so uh, I actually know that I'm descended from from, from this person. Uh, and uh, yes, the Queen was indeed my 19th cousin. Wow, it's always nice to have a bit of royalty in the family, isn't it? <laughs> it's nice, yes, it is. Before coming on, we did ask you to pick a song that kind of sums up your life and you picked Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up. Why did you choose this one? Uh, I think it came out in around about 1970 or thereabouts. Um, and I was uh, I was a miserable child anyway. Uh, and um, becoming a teenager really didn't suit me at all. Um, and uh, I was actually um, having psychotherapy uh, at a child guidance clinic because in those days, you see, nobody knew what autism was. Um, well, they did or they thought they did. They didn't know about Asperger's syndrome. They didn't know that you could be, you know, someone who could talk and apparently function, but at the same time was autistic and was really struggling with life. Um, so they didn't know what was wrong, but I was clearly unhappy. And there's just something about this song that makes, that just sort of tells me, you know, it's going to be okay. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Keep following the stories at midlands183.com. Midlands you're listening to the best of the Midlands Today show from 2023 and Anne Hegarty was one of our guests last July. She was in her 40s when she was diagnosed with autism. I didn't realise it was actually something diagnosable. I just always, um, since I was a child, I just thought that there, there were, you know, just simply ways in which I didn't fit. I didn't understand. Other people didn't understand me uh, and I could not figure out what it was the thing is um it wasn't until there was a guy called um 
Kanner, I can't remember his first name, but he studied uh, autistic children in the early part of the last century. Um, and because we, everyone thought they knew what autism was because of the kind of children he'd studied. But he studied the kind of children who were very, um, they were completely nonverbal. They didn't interact. Um, they just kind of sat in the corner rocking. Um, and it wasn't until the 1990s that a woman called Lorna Wing started doing some research into the work of a guy called Hans Asperger, um, who had studied kids with what we now call Asperger syndrome. And she realized we're actually talking about the same thing. This is a kind of autism. It's just that this is autism with kids who can actually speak, who can interact, but are just sort of slightly, you know, at a slight angle to the universe, as it were. Um, and uh, that was when she realized that there was an autistic spectrum. Um, up until then, you see, up until then, it would never have occurred to anybody to call me autistic because I was a, a lively, chatty child uh, who tended to talk all the time um, about stuff that interested me, whether it interested anybody else or not. Uh, and people just did not realize at the time that that did signify what we now call autism. And we don't so much use the term Asperger syndrome anymore um, because it's been established. The only difference between Asperger syndrome and high functioning autism used to be that uh, it was Asperger's if you started talking at the normal age. And it was high functioning autism if you had language delay. And I think they've recently thought, you know, that's not actually a terribly significant distinction. Let's just bundle it all together and call it autism. And has it made any difference to your life finding out that you have autism? It has. Uh, I mean, when I discovered this, which was like about 20 years ago now, um, I, I was fascinated. I just read everything I could get my hands on. Um, it... Uh, it did. It just clarified so many things. It helped me to think back um, to my childhood. It helped me to be a lot more forgiving about my childhood. It helped me to say, oh, I see. I understand what was happening in that situation I didn't understand. And I now realize they were trying to be nice and they just, I didn't appreciate that. I didn't realize what was going on. But, you know, discovering that people did not mean as unkindly as I had thought they did. Um, that was, you know, that was healing. And then just coming back to your earlier life, you were you were born in London. I was, yes. And you studied uh, journalism as well in Cardiff University. Did you pursue right. I, a career in journalism? I did. Um, I did my degree in linguistics at Edinburgh University, which was where um, my grandparents had met. Um, and uh, then I went on and did um, the postgraduate course at uh, what was then the Centre for Journalism Studies at University College Cardiff. It's now just simply Cardiff University. Um, and uh, it was always a very highly thought of course. Um, so once you'd been on that, you could generally get uh, a decent entry level job. And I spent, let me think, three years on the South Wales Argus in Newport because I discovered I just loved South Wales so much that I was perfectly happy to stay there. Um, so I did that, then moved to Manchester um, to get another job. Quickly discovered the other job wasn't what I'd hoped it would be. So within a year, I went freelance uh, and was um, writing articles for mostly for magazines for the next few years. And then around about 1990, I thought to myself, do you know what? I hate being edited. 
I would rather be the person doing the editing because it feels like I can't get my real voice out there. So I moved into book publishing um, and I was a proofreader for about 20 years. Uh, and then I got the job on the chase. And going back, I suppose, to quizzing, where did the love of quizzing actually come from? Was that something you were into from when you were young? Well, my Scottish grandfather um, had been a publisher, um, so the house was always full of books. Um, and I just used to read and read and read. And I remember the, the, the primary school that I went to was honestly not much cop. Um, I've recently uh, reconnected with uh, a few people that I was at primary school with, and, and they're all saying it was a dreadful school. Um, and I, I can remember that um, there were a load of um, photographs uh, along one corridor, and they were photographs of uh, recent monarchs. And I noticed, you know, it was, as it was then, the current monarch, and then it was Jern, then it was George VI, and then it went straight to George V. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I've heard a rumour that there was another one in between there. And I thought, I can't trust these people to teach me the truth, can I? I'm going to have to check this stuff on my own. And my father uh, had brought home a set of children's Britannicas. So there was a list of monarchs in there. And I just read it and read it and read it. And uh, after a bit, I realized I actually did have it all um, off pat. I could actually remember all the monarchs and their dates. And that sort of gives you a framework on which to, to hang things. I started learning. I remember, I can't, to my shame, I can't remember them now, but I remember learning all the counties of Ireland, um, which province they were in, and all of them in alphabetical order. Um, so I can remember, you know, Carlo, Dublin, Kildare, Kilkenny. Then there's an awful lot that I can't remember. Um, and I couldn't pronounce Leech. I used to call it Leeks. Uh, Leeks, Louth, Longford, it used to go. Um, that's wrong, isn't it? Because it should be Leeks, Longford, Louth. OK, well, I'm not very good at the alphabet, clearly. <laughs> well, OK, at least you know how to pronounce Leech now at this stage. <laughs> well, I do now, yes. Nobody in my family could ever pronounce Irish words or Irish names. My grandmother's name was Deirdre Newler. And we spent her entire life thinking she was called Deirdre Newalla because she didn't know any better, having been brought up in Scotland. And uh, neither did we. We always say here in the Midlands, especially, it isn't, if you see a word, don't pronounce it how it should be, because it will be pronounced <laughs> very, very differently to that. <laughs> oh, I realise that, yes. Do you have any tips for quizzers here in Leash Offley and Westmeath about how they can hone their skills? Um, I think there probably is quizzing in Dublin. I don't know that there would be any quiz leagues further out. Um, I would read a great deal, learn lists, um, you know, learn lists of Taoiseachs, which would be useful, uh, and presidents of Ireland. Um, use, uh, there's a, a wonderful American website called Sporkle, um, S-P-O-R-C-L-E. Go and look at that. And there are, <clears throat> there are loads of, um, quiz games on there and you can search um <clears throat> so you can search for you know lists of Taoiseachs or something like that uh anything that you want to learn lists of uh and it's very useful I mean I'm still very bad on any counties that are not in England 
So, you know, spoken is very useful for reminding me of the Scottish counties and the Irish counties and the Welsh counties. It can be hard to remember all those informa- all that information about the different counties, um, especially in different countries as well. And <laughs> trying to, to remember um, to remember them all can be really difficult, and especially if you're not interested in a subject. So if there's something that yes. you're not interested in, how do you recall that information? Um, I mean, I'm, it's no great secret I'm not good on sport. I try to remember things, and if I see a name um, that's obviously important, I think, right, I'm going to have to remember that. I have to try and come up with a mnemonic to remember it with. Um, and, uh, I mean, things like I, I've um, had to remember, I've had to invent mnemonics for um, the countries of Central America and some countries in, in West Africa and the bridges across the Thames. Um, because, you know, those are things I'm not necessarily interested in. But uh, you kind of, you have to be able to, either mnemonics or word association. Um, but as I say, playing sporkle is useful. If you've just simply filled in um, things often enough, and if, you know, you've played a game often enough and thought, what is that one? I can never remember what that one is. If you do it enough times, you will eventually remember it. And hopefully you'll remember it in the middle of a quiz. But, uh, but I'm on both, so, uh, so it's OK anyway. That was the governess, Anne Hegarty, from The Chase. She was discussing her family roots in Leash and Offaly and her diagnosis of autism. Still to come this morning, Brezzy will talk about his fear of water and the importance of building resilience. Love the Midlands. On today's Midlands Today show, we are playing some of your favourite interviews from 2023. Coming up, you'll hear about two inspirational young men from the Midlands. But first, over €100,000 was raised by Brezzy after he undertook the challenge of kayaking the length of the River Shannon this summer. Niall Breslin from Mullingar and his teammates experienced several challenges over the course of their journey. The money raised is to support his mental health charity, A Lust for Life. Before he undertook this huge challenge, he had to first overcome his fear of water. Yeah, well, my fear of water was was uh, quite a deep one. I had it years ago. And actually, my first response to that was open water swimming, which was probably too extreme. And I hated water. I hate fish as well. I absolutely hate them. They're disgusting things. And I I kind of decided to get into open water swimming and that was my initial kind of relationship with, with water, which now I absolutely adore. I feel more home home in water than sometimes than I do in land. And in the kayak, my fear was more getting trapped under the kayak because I was trapped as a child uh, in a kind of community or a, a, like, you know, those summer camps that you go on and yeah. I fell out of a kayak and got stuck and my foot got stuck in it. And that's been a horrible, traumatic memory I've had for so long even from being a child. And in this particular situation, I just terif- was terrified if I fall out, how do, what if I get stuck under the water? So that fear was very, very real. And I practiced it. And it's all good, well and good practicing a nice calm Loch lock Ool when the water's flat. But when you're in the middle of Loch Ree and there's a storm, it's a different thing. And that's actually what happened. Joe capsized in Loch Ree. And that was our biggest fear come true. And we dealt with it. You know, we, we had protocols in place. We knew exactly who was doing what. And in the midst of a storm in the middle of Lockery, we got Joe out of the water. We emptied his kayak and, and we got him back going. And I think that's that's what resilience actually is. I think sometimes resilience is a word that we sell as, you know, the, the, you see these guys doing resilience programs in workplaces because they think it's OK to make people work 60 hour weeks. That's not what resilience is. That's just avoidance. 
And for me, resilience is the ability to come back from adversity. It's not the ability to ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. And I think sometimes we sell that as resilience. And that was the most pr- proud moment of the whole thing for me, because in that panic, in that fear and all that stuff that came true for all of us in that moment, we we helped them and we got them back into the boat and we almost acted like it didn't happen, which was pretty incredible. As you said, resilience, it is about being able to bounce back and continue on that journey. That's what it is. And I, as I said, like, it's a great word. We like to use it because it looks good when workplaces go, we're doing resilience programs. But you can't do a resilience program and use that as a reason to be able to drive people into the ground with work. You know, that's not how it works. That's not what it's there for. So I think we need to be careful with the word and stop using it as a, you know, I have a friend who's a doctor who works 70 hour weeks and they're doing resilience programs. I mean, they don't need resilience programs. They need to not be working 70 hours a week. There's nothing that fixes that. And I think we've created that in this kind of country that is so driven by economic metrics, like everything is about productivity. And we can't have that conversation and a mental health conversation at the same time, because, as I said, there's certain responsibilities that human beings, you know, need to spend time with their families, for example. They need to they need to spend time away from work. They need and work is a, a, a great and an important thing. But I think sometimes resilience is a word that we like to use because it feels safe to use rather than to actually understand the true meaning of what it is. And as I said, anyone listening to this, if you got through the pandemic and you're still in metaphorical sense standing, that's the very definition of what resilience is. You don't need to be any more resilient than that. You are the very definition of what it actually is. That was a difficult period, even getting the kids to school some days, even to you know, keep them at home some days required huge, huge resilience. And I think sometimes we like to sell it as something that people don't have. But I think we all naturally have it already. And sometimes it takes a crisis for it to come out. Children and young adults are seeing life and perfect images on Instagram and are not able to cope with the upsets in life. And we're not really teaching younger people about how to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, it becomes almost cliche to take a pop at social media. But uh, social media is something that I suppose young people have evolved to a point to be able to understand a little, probably a lot better than I do. And there's a certain normalization of it that I worry about, the normalization that our relationships are online. And that's not, that is not true. It's just not. And unfortunately, you don't build emotional intelligence and the ability to communicate and to be with other humans when you do it online. Uh, predominantly, I mean, there is ways of building good communities online. There's no doubt about it. But I think, unfortunately, it's the opportunity cost of actually being with people collectively, because that's how you really navigate the world. And even in things like relationships, like I still have that utter visceral fear of when I first went up to a girl to ask her out, like that horrible experience of just walking up and sweating from, you know, you know, like thinking, oh, what's going to happen here? And even that has been kind of gamified almost. And I think that's that's the stuff I do worry about young people. But I do feel that they're maybe adapting to it a little quicker than we think they are. But my fear is the normalization of things that aren't really that normal. And humans have evolved in a way that requires communities and requires uh, working together collectively as face to face. That's how our brains were developed, you know, and when you look at things like evolutionary psychology and, and, and all those elements, I do worry a little bit about where we're going. The other thing I worry about is, is, you know, the acceptance of certain behaviors. You know, 
if Twitter, for example, was real life, if you looked out the window now from where you are, people would be screaming at lampposts and, and burning, you know, cars and houses down. It's not real life. It's not how we behave in real life. It's not the reality. And then we see things like the throwing people under a bus, you know, the popcorn moments when somebody has done something wrong or hasn't particularly lived up to some moral kind of high ground that we're meant to impossibly sustain ourselves at. We we wait for that moment to just tear them apart. And it's like watching sharks with, you know, I always say the, the, the metaphor I use is like gladiators, Roman, the Roman lords being like the owners of the social media companies watching us rip each other limb from limb for their entertainment or their bank balance, because that's what it is. That's how the algorithms work. They work around division and they work around dividing us rather than actually unifying us at a time when we need to figure out how to come together. So these are all things that we've developed into the Illust for Life schools programs. You know, you can give out about the problems, but they're not going away. And we, you cannot compete with tech companies. Not even major economies can do that. Like, they're too quick. They're too dynamic. They're too agile. By the time you come up with some kind of regulation, they've changed the way they behave. So you can't compete with that. But what you can do is arm young people with the tools to navigate it and do it now at, you know, the age of five, six, seven years of age. We need to stop with the idea, you know, of pretending this doesn't exist. It does. And as much as you don't want it, to, it does. And we need to prepare young people for it. And I think we can. I think education is a superpower to do that. Let's talk about your time in school, because your CV now lists you as a podcaster, PhD student, best-selling author, keynote speaker, mental health campaigner, charity founder, musician, former pro rugby player and TV presenter. When you were in school, were your sights set on any of that? Not a bit of it, like literally not a bit of it. When you're in school, you can become very much pulled by uh, societal forces. Like ironically, everybody, when I was in, going to college, wanted to work in a bank. You know, that was the safe job that the parents always pushed you towards. Like you should, you know, get a job in the bank. So everyone was doing commerce and UCD. And, you know, two years later, there's a banking crisis and the whole country shut down. You know what I mean? So I, I think you can get pulled in many directions or you can be pulled in the direction of your parents. You could live in their particular, what they wanted to do. And a, a big drive of, of my work is uh, Ken Robinson, who is an educational expert. He had an incredible TED talk called Killing Creativity. And everybody should listen to that because I think no adult has a right to tell a child what they should like or what they should do because it falls into the what you think society expects of them. I think that is the problem. And I am in music. I'm in the creative industry. And all my life, I was told in school, I'm a waster because of it. I, I went to the same school as Niall Horn. It's very hard to tell Niall Horn he wasted his life, yeah. you know, and that's the reality. And there wasn't there was some teachers who weren't like that. Some teachers who were immensely supportive of the work that I wanted to do. And they were they were quite silent about it because, you know, in school, it was all driven around academia. And the reality is the most successful people I have worked with in my life in all different areas of life didn't do quite well in their academic life. And. I'm a PhD student, which is seen as like a, a high level academic achievement. But I wasn't academic in school because I was doing things I wasn't interested in. And I'm very, very interested in psychology and sociology. I'm obsessed with it, which is why this PhD feels like it's not a it's not difficult because you're learning about things you love. So we all kind of look to Nordic countries and how they do it. But I do think Ireland is is moving on. I think we're moving away from the Leaving Cert. I think the Leaving Cert is an absolute disaster. I think it is a terrible indication of intelligence. 
And I think that we, we, we are moving away. There seems to be a natural progression towards something different, which is great. It doesn't feel like there's huge resistance to that. And I think we have to be very careful of what it is. But above everything, what we need is to teach young people to do the things that they love to do and educate them in that. And of course, there's certain elements of life you need to know about. Like, you know, maths is important and languages are important and English is important. But I would love to see a different education system that promotes and sub- celebrates the, ch- the child's passion. Because whether that's music or whether it's business or whatever, filmmaking, uh, we've proven ourselves as Irish people to be successful in anything we want to do once we're given the resources to do it. And when you were in school, was your energy more into music or sport at the time? Um, my energy was, you know, when I was in school, I, it wasn't a good time for me. It's probably a good way to describe it. I was, I was, I was kind of dealing a lot with panic attacks at the time. I didn't know what they were in the 90s. And I always talk about the first time I ever talked about mental health in schools when Kirk Cobain died and my teacher called him a coward and screamed in my face. You know, that was my mental health education. So I was very closed off and I was doing all the things that would make it hard for anyone to to believe that that's the way I was dealing with things. So sport was one of those things. And I was a Gaelic footballer. I wasn't a rugby player. I, I kind of loved Gaelic football. It was my first love. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately, rugby became financially supportive for me going to college. I got a scholarship. And at the time, my parents had just put, you know, four other people to college. They didn't they didn't have the money to send, like, me to college as well. So it was a huge decision for me to make. And I moved away from Gaelic football and into rugby. But music was, I always say sport is what I did. Music is what I am. It's always been the biggest driving force of my behavior. Creativity, generally, writing, uh, music, anything that requires the kind of creative mind and my creative mind doesn't stop. I never, it never stops thinking. And I suppose that's probably the crux of why I was uh, such an anxious, anxious teenager. My mind never stopped. So now what I do with my mind is I start focusing it on things that can create things. And that has been a huge help in actually dealing with the kind of anxiety levels that I had as a teenager. Hear Midlands today, tomorrow. Missed anything this morning? Catch the repeat at midnight tonight. Or listen back anytime on midlands103.com. Midlands 103. Our guest this morning is Brezzy. The Mullingar man joined us on Midlands today during the summer after his mammoth challenge of kayaking the River Shannon. The challenge was to raise money for his charity, A Lust for Life. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the schools understand it. I think more than anybody, they understand it because they're dealing with it. I think it's our health system, you know, and I think the big catalyst for my own work and my own PhD was the the CAMS report that came out in January, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services report. And, you know, there was a big media reaction to it. But these reports have been coming out for years. These 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 failures have been just silently happening constantly. And my PhD is actually looking at almost 200 years of this. And not a hell of a lot has changed in terms of how we fully support people in mental health care from from, you know, even from the last big report in 1966. So we're we're in a real issue here. We're talking about it and society is doing incredible work. You know, there's huge erosions of stigmas. We're having conversations on radio stations about it across the country about it. But there's something not adding up here and it's the systems and it's the systems of care for the children and the adults that need it. 
So we got to look at that and we got to figure out what the issue is here. And I suppose that's the core area of my focus and research is, is why is it, why is there so much resistance to do the right thing? And if you look at, for example, our mental health budget, it, we spend about 6% of the entire health budget on mental health, but I'm more interested in what that 6% is actually spent on. You know, where does that money go? And what is the model that we use to care for young children? Like, for example, we immediately pathologicalize it. We immediately say it's something wrong with their brains. But actually, if you if you look at it, a lot of young children just have experienced difficult things that they need to work out and work through and support them with and make them make sense of it and understand it. But immediately we we diagnose them with something rather than help them. And I think the first part of call in my work is we, we ask somebody, what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you? So it's that mentality. That's the big paradigm shift we have to see in mental health. We need to move beyond the idea of constantly telling people that they're broken and and just more spread the message that they're human. And especially with young people. But that CAMS report was very, very, very difficult to read. And I'm guessing most people here haven't read it and I probably wouldn't read it because it's too upsetting because we're putting children on hardcore medication and we're not monitoring them. You know, stuff like that. We're we're losing children in caseloads because we're still using paper. You know, there there is real definitive breakdowns in how we are supporting young children. And I just don't know how we're tolerating it. That's the I suppose the core of my work is how are we tolerating this? And unfortunately, you'll never really know how bad it is until you need to get help for your child. And and, and that is we can't be there and we don't need to be there. That's the positive message I like that we don't need to be. There is a better way. And part of that better way is already prevention and other ways are trauma informed care, community based care supports. You know, there is a better way of doing it. And for some reason, we seem to tolerate the way it is at the moment. And, you know, I always go back to that Manic Street Preacher song. If we tolerate this, then our children will be next. We did tolerate it and our children were next. And I think we have to step in now and we have to make this political. And I don't mean in a way that there has to be conflict here because politicians, I don't think politicians don't want to do anything here. I think they do. I just think they're terrified of this space. I think they've always been terrified of this space. I think it's the Pandora's box that no politician is willing to open. And we have to because we won't change it otherwise. And I think that isn't me being political. That's me really just caring about where this goes now and and where Lust for Life brings it and the likes of Pieta House and aware these charities that have picked up the pieces of a broken system. You know, what do we do now? And this has to move beyond mental health days. This has to change systems. This we we literally have to change systems. And there is a systematic stigma that still exists. There's people not getting jobs because they've had mental health issues. There's people not getting mortgages because they've got mental they had mental health issues. So the system is the stigmas are in the system. Uh, and society is doing an amazing job. People are having conversations with their loved ones, with their communities now, and we're moving, and it's fantastic, and it's a huge, huge level of progress. But now we got to turn our, our eye to the systems that support us. Because what works for one person won't work for another. And you ha- again, we spoke earlier on about language and the use of the word resilience and how that could have a negative impact on one person but somebody else could feel really empowered by being resilient but if someone's struggling to overcome something that term could really trigger them. Yeah and I think there's this the big term that we use in in my work is non-judgment so this this phrase of non-judgment we don't know what anyone's carrying 
you genuinely don't. And maybe because something doesn't stress me out, like, you know, for example, rowing across Loch Derg was something I could cope with. But then something, something maybe that other people wouldn't perceive as stressful could have a huge overwhelming impact on me. Uh, because it might have brought up something in me that I dealt with, as you know, that or I didn't deal with, uh, essentially. And I think that is where we have to learn that the tools are universal, the tools of how we respond to certain things that happen to us. Now, this isn't going to solve all the problems that we have, but it's certainly going to make a massive difference. So what I mean by that, like, for example, is even if you look at a young child who's experiencing anxiety and what I do to young children is when I'm when I'm chatting with them about it, I don't I don't dismiss it. I, I don't I validate that anxiety. I say, oh, that must be uncomfortable for you. You know, that must be that must be really uncomfortable. And what we've done with un- discomfort is we've we've told people they never need to be uncomfortable, which isn't true. It's just not true. We all experience discomfort. No one likes it. Anxiety is part of us all, but no one likes to be really anxious. But it's what gets you up in the morning. It's what keeps you alive. And I think. So what I explain to teachers is that our central nervous system is an alarm system. It's a security guard. And it's unbelievable at its job. That's It's trying to keep us alive. It's trying to keep us safe. But some people have security guards that work all the time and never take a day off. And that that was me. And so you start to teach them what's happening in the body and how you can actually deal with that anxiety. And the way to deal with that anxiety is not to run away from it. It's actually to come up to it and sit with it and actually ask yourself, where in your body are you experiencing it? And can you breathe into that? Can you soften it? And these are tools if you're teaching children this stuff at an early age, rather than tell them you shouldn't be anxious, you shouldn't be scared, you shouldn't be sad. It's just nonsense. And, you know, you can't tell a child not to feel something they already feel like. If they're feeling anxious, they're anxious. And just because you tell them not to be, it's not going to change that. So we got to give them tools and we got to give them understanding and function. And that's that was the core of my master's. My master's was focusing on how we can better support young people deal with this kind of anxiety and overwhelm. And a core part of my PhD is this, is, you know, we need to change how we do this, I feel. And I think part of that is 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 to give them young people the tools and, and adults the tools, because we all, as I said, respond differently to everything and anything. And that's what makes humans so interesting, in my opinion, you know, and we are interesting and we are are different. And I think the other thing to talk about, sorry, I'm going on now about it, is that oh, you're okay. one, of the, one of the big things that drove Ireland to have the highest level of people in psychiatric institutions in the world in 1950, we had the highest level of people per capita in psychiatric institutions in the world. Now, that's a huge thing to say. That was more than the USSR by a multiple was because we were so driven by conformity. We needed everybody to be perfectly conventional and conform exactly to what the church tells us to do, to exactly what, you know, nationalism was saying at the time. And we were terrified to step outside that box. And if you did, you were seen as different and you were put into institutions. And we need, you know, I, I people joke about this with me, but I actually am deadly serious. When Ireland started to move away from conformity is when, say, Ray Houghton scored against England in 1988, when Boyzone came on the scene and we're number one in the UK, when Riverdance came, we started to see this different look of Ireland. We weren't insular anymore. We were celebrating this difference and this, this you know, uniqueness. And we were outward looking and we moved away from conformity and we moved into self-expression and creativity and all these other things that make Ireland such an amazing place. And... Lo and behold, our institutions closed down. 
because conformity was no longer a thing. And I think that's something we must celebrate in children. Not all children are going to be the same and we don't want them to be. It'll be an incredibly boring world if our, all our children were perfectly conventional and conforming. And I think it's important we need to celebrate that. And we need to provide support as well for things like assessment. So if a child is struggling in school, we assess them immediately and then we create support structures for that child so they can deal with that and actually happily deal with that. And that's that's once back to the systems. So, you know, this is something I think Ireland is being quite good at. I think we're quite good at social change. And I think we've shown that marriage equality. You know, we were the first country to do that. And you saw that didn't happen on one day in May. That happened over years and years of conversations with, you know, you going back to your, your granny and telling her, you know, that, you know, I need you to 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 love me. That's how that changed. I call it dinner table democracy. It it changed not on Twitter. It changed in communities. And I think if we're going to move past where we're at with mental health, that's where we're going to have to go. And that's the change we're going to have to see. Because we do have a fear of the unknown. If it's not something that's been in our lives or we don't know somebody who's been through it, then we kind of don't know how to deal with it. And that's natural. And that's OK. And I think it's important to say that to people like I'm not with the conforming thing that 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 was we just came out of colonialism. So we were we needed to show the Brits that we weren't going to fall apart and that we were actually, you know, we we know how to keep ourselves together. And there was that drive for nationalism way back then that still is part of our psyche, you know, which might sound a bit deep for people, but it's true. You know, we carried this idea of notions and you can't, you know, these types of things and you got to be this or you can't be that. Or, you know, you look at the Magdalene laundries and things like that. That That's a dark history that we haven't even began to process and deal with. And avoidance is the root of all disorder. We need to bring it up now and talk about it and we need to work through it. So, yeah, fear is a huge driver of human behavior. And our, the fear I feel in Ireland was we were terrified to be different. And we are different. Humans are different. And I think Unfortunately, that was abused by things like psychiatric institutions, you know, where, where an awful lot of people who ended up in there had nothing wrong with them. And that's the saddest part. And as I said, that's a huge part of my research is we need to, we need to honor their 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 dignity was taken from them in life and we need to give it back to them in some way. And I think, as I said, these institutions were there across Ireland. Course of confinement was a huge part of our history. But I think we need to talk about it now. I think that that's part of the systematic stigmas that exist. For example, some of the the legal acts, like the legal acts that we use for mental health, they're still in place. It's crazy. Like the Mental Health Act is so draconian. And there used to be an act called the Dangerous Lunatics Act in Ireland, which was the only act in the world where you could criminalize somebody before they did a crime. We put them into institutions without any evidence. So. Yes, this might feel overwhelming for people, but it's okay that, you know, it's okay. That's how we move. That's how we change things. And um, it's overwhelming for me because I, you know, I, I've, I've known people who are in these places. So, yeah, I think this is the entire conversation of mental health. And I think we need to move past, as I said, just having awareness days. If we're not willing to get down into the weeds with what we did and how we move past it, then the the international mental health days are just words. That's all they are. Well, Brezzy, you've offered us a huge insight into mental health this morning. And just before I let you go, you recently became a homeowner yourself and you've been doing DIY. Has that helped you as well, kind of uh, get out some frustrations? 
Oh, yeah. But you know what the big thing was? It, it gave me a home. It gave me a support structure. Like I I bought my first home at 40. Uh, I was living at home for three years before that, you know, and I do think having a home brings something. It brings a huge level of comfort that is so far beyond a lot of people in Ireland right now because of, you know, what what has happened to the housing crisis. And I think that a home is far more than bricks and mortar. It's a it's stability. And I think that's it, it was also a statement for me to go, this is where I'm from. This is where I'm going to live. This is where I want to be. And yeah, and I think it, yeah, for me, I had a, an absolute, it was such a big moment to, to get the keys and to go in and then destroy the house and demolish it, you know, I which mean, I did. Is- I'm very, I'm very, I, I used to work in demolition when I was like 17 and 18. So I give me a crowbar and I can destroy a house in, in, in an hour. But um, yeah, I ripped it out and then I, I couldn't get anyone at the time because it was uh, it was the pandemic. So I couldn't get tradespeople. So I had to do it myself. So it's genuinely on YouTube, like how to build a wooden floor and how to put it in. And I'm still waiting for that floor to warp and come up. But I somehow managed it with a bit of help from my mate Shane. There is a sense of uh, achievement, though, when you've... DIY is hard. Like, I mean, that's not, but you know what? It's just not, it's never interested me, I suppose. It's probably because I never had a some somewhere to do it. My dad was like how did you become like like a Dermot Bannon overnight? I was like, because I had to be dad. I'm not going to fix up your house. It's your house. You do it. So I was like, you know, I think he was shocked that when I came into the house and started to build it and, and do it up and do it all myself. But as I said, I had I had help. But it was a real sense of, I had nothing else to do as well at the time because I, I suppose we weren't able to gig or work or stuff. So I focused on it and, you know, I don't take it for granted that I, I, I have a home. I, I really don't. I'm very... I worked hard to get one, but I, I, I also think there's an important human right to it, mm. stability for families. And I think we have to we have to look at that as well. And just to finish on that, mental health, we shouldn't silo as in mental health over there. And then you have homelessness over here and the housing crisis. They're all, all part of the same conversation. They're all part of how do we create far better, more humane ways of governing people to support them. So, you know, they don't find themselves living in hotels or out in the street in a country that has the highest GDP in the in Europe. I have a degree in economics. It's a very blunt instrument to judge a society. And unfortunately, that's what we do here. And I think we should judge a society on how we treat its most vulnerable and ask yourself, are we doing a good enough job here? And don't get me wrong, I, Ireland is in an amazing place with uh, amazing things. And I'm, we're very lucky to live here. But that shouldn't offset the fact that we need to do better for people who need who need better. And I think that is the core of, of, of what we're trying to do with Lust for Life. And that was Brezzy discussing fears, mental health and DIY. Still to come this morning, you'll meet some of the most inspirational young people in the Midlands. The Midlands most listened to radio show, Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands 103. Over the course of the last 12 months, I've had the opportunity to speak with so many inspiring children and teenagers. Ian Flood from Clambalogue was one of them and he was recognised for his bravery this year. He was just 15 when his mum suffered a heart attack while driving him to school. Ian somehow managed to bring the car over to the correct side of the road and bring it to a stop. He then immediately sought help for his mother and after stopping another driver, he then helped to perform CPR on his mum who sadly passed away. Speaking earlier this year, he recalled what happened on that tragic day. 
My mother went into the car to go rest driving the car, and the car veered off to the side of the road. Me, with my bravery, tried to get the car out onto the road without getting any collisions or anything happening to anybody else. Our road users on the road, and just went from there, like trying to get help. And but the end of it all, she sadly passed away. It was just a matter of trying to act fast and think quick and make sure to do the right thing and not cause more accidents a pile up like and keep everyone else safe as well as myself and try to do the best and it's incredible the story that we heard from, from you tonight that you managed to stay so calm and be able to take control because you were only 15 at the time yeah I was only 15 and kind of had a bit of knowledge like about cars and that so I kind of had a fair idea how to stop it and the whole lot it's just a matter of keeping calm and thinking of what to do getting the help you need once you got the car under control and managed to get it stopped you didn't stop there you continued to assist your mum who was having a cardiac arrest yeah uh man come behind us stopped kindly behind us and I asked him would he give us a hand to with my mother so me and that man took her from the car and put her on the road and that man started CPR 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 yes and sadly enough she passed away we waited for the ambulance to come and the ambulance kind of did all they could do and the emergency service were great on the scene I'd really like to thank Patrick Good from Retang Garda Station for all the help he did on the road that morning and since then you've been carrying on your mum's memory and you've been doing tremendous work is the only way to, to describe it you've been promoting road safety and spreading the message of the danger of the, of the roads and making sure that young people like yourselves know how things can happen in the spur of a moment yeah you should every young person should know the dangers of when you're out on the road get behind the wheel of a car how dangerous it can be like a lot of people do the speed and everything but like it's not worth it at the end of the day what could happen out there in a split second. And you've also been campaigning for road safety and CPR to be taught in schools, in secondary schools, because you would have been a student yourself at the yeah. time. Yeah, I think CPR should be really brought into secondary schools or even primary schools that, like, in sixth class, it's a good thing to have behind your belt. Like, if you come, come across anyone in cardiac arrest, you should be able to know what to do, like, to try to save that person's life. And road safety, like, that should be taught in every school, like, to help everybody when you get a licence and getting on the road how safe and how they should control themselves on the road mm. and not any acting the walls. And that was Ian Flood from Clambalogue. He was honoured at the Garda Youth Awards in November for a quick thinking and clarity of mind when he helped his mum. One of my favourite stories from 2023 is when the image of a Midlands boy went viral after he ran the length of the soccer field to support a player who his team had just beaten. St Francis FC goalkeeper Sachin was described as a true gentleman after he put his arm around the Tullamore goalkeeper's shoulder after the final whistle blew. The Athlone club scored the winning goal in the last minute of extra time. Last February, 11-year-old Sachin told me that it was mind-blowing that so many people had viewed the picture. I'd played with Dara previously on the Midlands team and... When I saw him crying, I felt really, really bad. And our coaches have always told us, like, always be gracious in defeat, and especially when you win. So the minute the final whistle blew, I went over to him, and I just told him that's all right. And there was, like, everyone, like, loses at one stage. You can't be perfect. So, yeah, I just helped him up, and we just walked off the pitch. I think our coaches at St. Francis have always told us when we're winning just to look out for everyone else and always be gracious when we win. So, 
that was the first thought that went through my head. Picture has now been viewed over 100,000 times. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, it's mind-blowing, the number. I I only thought it had been seen a couple of times. And then this morning I checked my phone and it was 110,000 and I was going mad. So, yeah, it's pretty incredible. And what do you think of the reaction from people who are saying that you're a true sportsman? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I don't know what to say about it. Like, it that wasn't what was going through my head. It was more just looking out for a friend when I was going down to him. And then, like, it wasn't really spoken about that day. And then the next day, when I look, it was on the Facebook and on Twitter. And then it was kind of a bit quiet. And then it just blew up all of a sudden. And what kind of reaction have you been getting from your own friends? My friends have been like just saying well done to me for doing it at school and like their parents have seen it as well. So it's been a positive reaction from everyone. And how long have you been playing soccer for? I've been playing since under eights or under sevens. And then it just started getting more competitive in the last few years, like part of the MSL team and been getting a bit more competitive. And are you good at it? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how good I am at it. Like, you'd have to ask other people to tell you. And what was it like to, to win um, that game uh, game at the weekend? How did you feel afterwards? I felt like a huge sigh of relief because that now we're in the top 16 in Ireland. We have to go to Galway next. So... We were really hyped up for that game, so really happy, especially the goal was in the last minute of extra time. So if that goal hadn't gone in, it was penalties, and that's anyone's game. So I felt really happy. And it is incredible when you win with that in the last minute of a game, but for um, Tullamore side, it was a moment of heartbreak then for them when they, they yeah. realised that they'd lost. Yeah, it was. It would have... I think it would have been for anyone, like for a game to come that close, right down to the debt, and then to get it just snatched away from you, it, it would definitely feel really bad. Thank you to everyone for their support, and like really didn't expect it at all. My name is Sanirin Jani Sundaris. Um, it feels kind of surreal sometimes. You know, you you don't really you see this happening with a lot of other uh, people. Sometimes you don't really uh, you're not part of this, so. It, does feel a bit surreal. At the same time, I'm uh, quite delighted for him. Actually, incredible moment to, and for people to see that picture that his first thought was for his friend rather than for himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I should definitely give a shout out to uh, Paul McGraw who took the picture. You know, uh, he he captured a really uh, nice moment. Um, but, you know, as part of uh, being a, sport, a sports person, you you do, you are on both sides, you know, of uh, win and lose. So, he, Sachin has been on team, part of teams when uh, they have lost uh, quite big games, and so I think they do. Rea- he does realize um, how it feels when you are so close to winning or so close, and then you lose games in such close moments. So I think that that kind of prompted, and as he said. Um, he has been playing as part of the Midlands um, School Boys League and he's played with Dara for a while now. They are um, their goalkeepers in the peers and uh, he's, he knows him quite well as well. So when this happened, it, it kind of prompted that uh, reaction from him.
I do feel like, you know, children uh, are quite impressionable and they observe and absorb a lot from their environment. So, um, you know, I do have to, again, give a shout out to the team, to the coaches uh, in St. Francis. They have always um, impressed upon the team you know, that no matter how hard you fight, you fight to win. And But at the same time, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's it's a game, and uh, you do have to be gracious, and you do have to look out for everyone. So this has always been a part of our uh, coaches and the teams. Ethos, I would say. So the children do learn, do observe, and learn, and uh, that has definitely um, been in in their minds. So that has definitely helped him, you know, helped everybody. And thanks to Sachin and his mum for joining me. It's such absolutely beautiful story. Well, that's all we have time for this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Goodbye. Midlands Today with Bus Erin. Use your TFI Young Adult or Student Leap Card on board Bus Erin services as part of the Transport for Ireland network. Visit buserin.ie today.